0: On this episode of Emergence, we'll be talking about anti poaching in South Africa. Welcome to Emergence, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alistair King. All views expressed in this podcast are mine or those of my guests and do not represent the views of the company. I'm pleased to be able to speak to you again in 2022. I've had less podcasts in the last six months or so than I was planning. I've had a number of throat problems, so I apologise for that. But we've got some interesting podcasts coming up this year, and I'll give you some idea on those after you've heard the interview with Captain Carl Thornton from Pit Track in South Africa. Before that, just a quick thought about what's happening. We've had two years where COVID has disrupted quite a lot. It certainly had an impact on vaccination campaigns, how governments have been able to approach controlling these diseases. We've certainly seen negative impacts on some of the successes that had been achieved. However, things are changing. It's great to see that vaccination campaigns are starting again. It's difficult. We're finding that the supply to certain countries is harder. There are less flights. The flights that do occur are often with smaller aircraft. They don't have the temperature control that we're used to. And there is a shortage of materials for making vaccines and simply for running manufacturing plants. So this is all a challenge. But as I say, we are seeing campaigns start again, which is very positive. And I'm really hopeful as we start to meet again this year face-to-face, we can all sit down and talk about how we can continue to make a difference. Diseases have been rampant. We're seeing new African swine fever cases occurring. We've seen Northern Italy, we've seen Thailand. We've had rabies cases in Poland and also in the US with some imported dogs. And then avian influenza, clearly massive spread of that at the moment. So we need to keep aware, keep alert, And ready for what the next threat is and how we're going to work together to counter that. I hope that our podcast later in the year will help with some of that. In the meantime, we're now going to talk about something that is slightly different from our normal podcasts. Rather than looking at disease, we're going to look at some of the impacts around animals, especially wildlife, in South Africa. And how we can work to improve the situation there. So for that, I'm talking to Captain Carl Thornton from Pit Track, an organisation that runs anti-poaching teams to protect the wildlife. Let me pass over now to the interview. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Captain Carl Thornton today to the podcast. So we can talk about Pit Track. This is a bit different to a lot of the things we normally cover on the the podcast, but I think it's important because it's very much a one health area. Pit Track is about anti-poaching in South Africa. I'm going to pass over to Carl because he'll be much better to explain what the program is and what they do. Carl, welcome.
1: Yes, yes. Thank you so much for including us um, on this podcast today. I'm most uh, honored to be part of it and, and share with you guys and our experiences and, and the relevant knowledge thereof. Okay, so PitTrack is a non-profit organization. We're a, we're a canine conservation and anti-poaching unit. So we deployed uh, here in South Africa in our biggest conservation areas. We deployed in the greater Kruger National Park which is a massive uh, conservation area, one of the biggest in the world. And um, we we are deployed to protect animals from the onslaught of poaching. Uh, We've got a huge uh, poaching pandemic in South Africa, and uh, we've got uh, the majority of our our species that are on the brink of of extinction. So uh, we use canines um, in the field in order to assist us with our anti-poaching operations. Uh, It's a very specialized program. And uh, a program that has brought uh, great results in industry. And um, yeah, we're very passionate about, um, you know, protecting these animals and um, our national heritage. And uh, yeah, we've been about 20 years now in deployment and uh, we keep growing and keep pushing and we hope to see a change.
0: I became aware of what you're doing probably about two years ago. Our South Africa team approached us, looking at how we'd be able to support you in the field. and. It really caught my attention because I talk a lot about one health, one welfare. And I think that's really reflected in what you do. We're supporting the dogs who support the people who then support the rhinos and the other animals. And that protects the environment. Do you think about that, that side of it, how everything interacts?
1: Most certainly. So, you know, here in South Africa, we, we've definitely got, you know, the, the same dynamic that um, it's a united approach. And, uh, you know, only through unity can we achieve um, the goals. You know, we're sitting in a situation where our wildlife, um, you know, it supports the country and it supports the economy, you know, especially through international tourism. It brings um, a large amount of revenue into the country and, and, you know, international guests are coming here to enjoy this beautiful country that we have and these beautiful animals, you know, and with the loss of these conservation areas and the loss of tourism, you know, the country will be um, deeply affected, you know, causing a lot more unemployment and a lot more struggle for, for underprivileged and so forth. So it's a united effort between communities and enforcement agencies and anti-poaching operations in order to protect, you know, um, our national heritage. You know, under no other uncertain definition is exactly what it is. You know, it's really the heart and soul of, of South Africa is, is what we have here wildlife wise that you can't really find anywhere else in the world and it is just um, so important that it's protected for the benefit of all you know with regards to the animals it's also it's a beautiful connection that we have um, with dogs you know dogs um, helping in the fight um, against uh, poaching and syndicate poaching you know animals saving animals um, which is a really beautiful thing you know i've also got mounted units using uh, horses um, you know horses also saving animals and uh, just the incorporation of, of using um, you know, animals to, to save animals is, is something that I, that I really enjoy and something that um, really brings massive results in, in what we're trying to achieve.
0: How did you get started in this? What brought you into it?
1: So myself personally, um, I've been deployed on anti-poaching contracts for the last uh, 22 years. And um, I was thrown right in the deep end, right in the beginning, having to protect um, some of the most important uh, key areas. You know, so I grew up um, being surrounded by wildlife and the the wildlife really gave me a lot of happiness and a a lot of joy in life. And growing up with the wildlife in the natural areas, I also realised from a very young man how important important the balance of nature is. And, um, you know, from everything, from the soil, to the grass, to the grazers to the predators, to, to these great land animals that we have, elephant, rhino, buffalo, and what an important role they all play in in sustaining an ecosystem. And when the ecosystem and these relevant animals came under threat, you know, I just felt that it's my absolute responsibility that I need to give back all the pleasures that were given to me and that I needed to dedicate my life in order to um, provide protection to these animals for the benefit of mankind and, and you know, for a sustainable future with wildlife.
0: We're talking about anti-poaching and trying to stop the poaching of rhinos and other animals. What does uh, an anti-poaching team look like? Who is going out into the, into the field to do this work?
1: So, you know, originally there was no such thing as anti-poaching. You used to have game rangers and the game rangers' responsibility was really to monitor wildlife, you know, um, also from a tourism value to be able to take guests out and walk in safaris and, uh, you know, to do ecological studies and so forth. So when we started getting these these syndicate and, and ex-military um, personnel um, involved in the poaching of our, of our priority wildlife, you know, we were left in a dynamic that um, the game rangers couldn't protect the animals. You know, no one really became a game ranger in order to fight terrorists. They more became a game ranger in order to protect wildlife. So um, anti-poaching is—it's a very specialised requirement. As the level of of um, syndicate poacher that we deal with is um, the majority of them, as mentioned, are, are ex-military personnel. Um, these guys are very well trained. Um, the syndicate bosses work for big terrorist organisations, and um, it's a very much a military approach in order to protect these animals. Um, you know, number one, you're working in in dangerous game territory, what we refer to as big five territory. You know, with your le- leopard, buffalo, um, lion, rhino, elephant. You know, very very dangerous animals. Um, the majority of these animals are poached at night um, and in pitch darkness, and in, also in moon cycles. So you sit with a you sit with a situation where you've got to provide protection to very dangerous wild, free roaming animals and um, in a situation where your enemy is is um, well trained um, heavily armed and uh, will go th- to any extent to achieve what they need to achieve you know if you look at the value um, of, of the products that they are obtaining you know we don't like to talk about value because it incites others to to wanting to get involved with similar activities but from a value point of view, if you look at black rhino horn being worth more than than um, diamonds, you know per carat, that, um, you know that's the level of what we're dealing with. And if you if you go back on the diamond trade and see what went happened with the blood diamonds and everything else, it's that level that we deal with. In my honest opinion, it it must be one of the most dangerous professions in the world to be able to provide protection to these animals.
0: And the team is made up of a ranger and and a dog. Basically, the way that it works is we work in details, so very specific to um, you know the operation on hand. So what we do is we've got um,
1: we've got rangers, uh, what we refer to as anti-poaching operators. So we have anti-poaching operators out in the field uh, constantly. These will consist of of groups, usually between two and eight individuals. Um, the guys are also um, definitely military trained. We also um, are armed. Um, We utilize uh, canines together with that function. We will have uh, dog handlers and um, Basically, we play the same game that uh, the poachers play, you know, we got to find the tracks of the rhinos We've got to um, track the rhinos, stay on the rhinos, provide them with immediate protection as one would um, providing a bodyguard um, service to the rhinos themselves, you know, to other priority species you know, we need to work with, uh, with an intelligence group. We need to work with a network of informers from our local communities that identify you know possible um, incursions from poachers infiltrating into communities in order to infiltrate into reserves. We need to uh, focus in our own units of infiltration. It's a very common thing that uh, the poachers will infiltrate into our anti-poaching organizations, putting syndicate members deep within our organizations to give out uh, information. And um, it's, it's it's soldiers, soldiers and, and warriors out in the game reserves that are trying to save these animals from extinction. You know, it's it's, it's hostile. Um, in my area of concern, we, we have incursions, multiple incursions on, on a daily basis. Um, in our area, we're looking at about 30 groups of three people at any given time, um, poachers operating within our area. We've also seen that as our anti-poaching systems have developed, um, so have the syndicates developed. You know, we've gone from um, the usual poaching outfit, used to be um, a tracker in order to track the rhino, and then um, an armed personnel, uh, usually with a high-caliber hunting rifle, in order to uh, shoot the priority species, let it be elephant or rhino, and then um, a guy to carry all the supplies, water and food and so forth because these poaching groups can spend uh, months out in conservancy areas at a time. And we've seen this now evolve, that now we've seen groups where they've included a fourth member now run flanks with AK-47s, and their job is to um, be able to deal with the anti-poaching units that are now providing the protection. So, um, yeah, it's a war that we are fighting here in South Africa. I don't think there's any other definition for what we're doing here. We are at war trying to save these
0: animals. That's quite incredible hearing you talk about that. You're opening my eyes to hear that they're at that, that level and that depth is quite incredible. Thanks for sharing that. What role do the dogs play in this?
1: So in my opinion, the dogs are the ultimate weapon in anti-poaching. Um, I don't think we have anything that brings more benefits to operations irreplaceable by man or machine so you know your dogs um, your dogs firstly from the scent capability you know one in a million uh, part scent capability uh, means that you get uh, a scent a scent function and a, and a scent ability out there in operations you know that no machine can provide you know just with the exceptional hearing you know it, it's a tool that um, that brings the best results so uh, in anti-poaching one of the most important functions is to be able to track rhino poachers. Conventional tracking methods is, is visual, where the actual operator would have to follow the, the poachers by looking for signs and evidence in the ground, footprints and, and broken grass and disturbed ground. In order to follow poachers, this process, even at the highest level, is, a, is, is not a process where one can close distance onto poaching groups operating in the field, it's a time-consuming process, and it's also got a lot of uh, complications that uh, that go with it. You know, hard ground makes it impossible to detect on very soft ground, very spongy ground. Light, poor light conditions, darkness, nighttime, you know, you can't you can't track. So with the dog's ability to be able to follow on scent trails using its scenting abilities um, and to be able to track these approaches, you know, a, a well-trained dog can track as fast as the handler can run. You know, and this allows us to be able to close distances on on poachers and actually make apprehensions. It also overcomes all those problems, you know, of hard ground, darkness and stuff. You know, not the dog not using visual, using the actual central to to follow the poachers. So the tracking ability is exceptional. You know, we've got um, a program. It's not my program. It's run by the Wildlife College. And these dogs run off lead with GPS collars. Um, these dogs have caught 187 poachers and 57 weapon systems in a period of about 11 months, you know, and it's just, that's more, it's more poachers and more weapon systems than anti-poaching outfits working with art canines have managed to catch in 20-year periods, you know, in such a short period of time. On the detection side, you know, detection dogs, substance detection dogs, you know, are very, very important, um, there, there are very few laws that, um, that, that, that assist us in order to provide this protection to animals. And um, the one main concern is that if you don't catch the poacher with a weapon system, you've actually got no charge against them. So the poaching groups, they know this. So the first thing that they do when getting confronted, if they feel that they've been overpowered, is that um, they'll hide their weapon systems inside the conservancy. So we utilize dogs, detection dogs, um, on the same scent abilities in order to find these weapon stashes. Um, We also do searches at entry and exit control points, searching all the vehicles coming in, searching all the vehicles going out, vehicles coming in, making sure they're not bringing illegal weapon systems, arms, ammunition into the conservation areas, and then searching vehicles going out, rhino horn, pangolin, ivory, making sure no wildlife products are going out. So where the detection canines have, have proved such big results is that we don't physically need to open up bags, we don't physically need to dig around in their cars you know the detection dogs can search a vehicle outside and will positively indicate on any contraband inside the vehicle in the same token that if if the, the indication is on a bag the bags can be put out into a detection area and the dogs can search each individual bag and they'll be able to indicate on which bag has a contraband inside and this has given us a real opportunity to be able to identify the perpetrators as well as comply to the laws in South Africa. And it's brought just absolutely massive results.
0: It sounds like there must be a massive amount of trust between the operators and the dogs. And indeed, as we're recording, I see a dog wandering around behind you. Is the operator and the dog, are they a team that work together routinely? Or do you just have a group of dogs and a group of operators? Yeah, so as, as the
1: industry works, um, you get different functions um, for the dogs in conservation. The one function would be a patrol function where guys take um, conservation dogs out and patrols those conservation dogs will bring um, early warning to po- to poachers inside the reserve, uh, early warning to dangerous game, and they, they are used very strategically in order to assist um, the ground operators in their patrol functions. And then you get your more specialized functions. So what we've spoken about with regards to human tracking, this is a very specialized function with line dogs, so that's a dog on a 10 meter lead, and then the off-lead program with the off-lead dogs, and then your substance detection dogs. So from the Patrol function. Um, we find that multiple um, handlers can use multiple dogs, and um, we've achieved that quite successfully. But from the specialised aspect of detection and tracking, um, it's all about the handler-dog relationship. Specifically, in our organisation, our dogs are not tools; um, they are brothers and sisters, and um, they are teammates. They are treated equally to that of their human counterpart. And um, it's the understanding, you know, people are 90% verbal, um, 10% body language. And dogs are 90% body language, 10% verbal. And it's a team. Handler and dog is a team. So it's the handler's ability to be able to read the dog and the dog's ability to be able to read the handler and a mutual understanding between the two in order to achieve a function. Yeah, our dogs are our lives, you know. And uh, people have asked me before, you know, if I had to choose um, in these dangerous environments, if I had to choose between my firearm or my dog, which one would I take? And uh, hands down, I'll take my dog. You know, my dog has saved my life on multiple occasions more than that uh, that my firearm has. And um, they're a huge part of us and a very, very special part of us. And it's all uh, relevant to the bond. You know, we have a, a phrase in our organization that says that, it flows through the lead, and 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 that's both ways, you know, from the dog to the handler, and from the handler back to the dog again. And um, yeah, most certainly, um, it's all dependent on the the bond between handler and dog.
0: So, how many dogs do you have in the organisation?
1: So, in the organisation, we have around fifty dogs. That, that does include retired dogs. It does include um, dogs that um, were introduced into our program and that um, didn't quite work out that, um, you know, we've now offered the sort of of end-of-life plan and uh, they perform um, functions outside of the conservation functions. Um, Operationally, we have 33 dogs um, deployed in conservation. Um, In the area that I'm working now, we have exactly 23 dogs and 23 handlers deployed in the greater Kruger National Park that are deployed uh, 24 hours, 7 days a week,
0: 365 days a year. On uh, the protection of priority species. Are there particular breeds that you like working with, or is it fairly open?
1: I'm a a firm believer that there's no such thing as a bad dog. You know, only bad handlers. And um, breed specific. You know, um, there there are standards which industry refers to, and and also what we we comply to um, with regards to certain breeds being specific for certain functions, and then you just get really special dogs of sort of strange, unrelated uh, breeds that, that, that tend to have the ability to perform the, the same functions, in some cases the same functions, even better than the stipulated breeds. So on our detection side, a Sable Shepherd, um, which is a specialized German Shepherd, I would say is, um, in my opinion, the best detection platform. Um, However, on our contract, again, we have a a cross between uh, an American Pit Bull Terrier and a Dutch Shepherd, that is our leading detection dog in the area. And, um, you know, German Shepherd, also well used on the detection side, Labradors and and Labrador Crosses um, as good detection platforms. On the tracking platforms, as we spoke about in the off-lead programs, uh, the Black and Tan uh, Texas Coonhounds, exceptional in the off-lead program. Uh, We also have a pack of German short hair pointers that are being also trained on an off-lead program, currently used as line dogs, exceptional uh, tracking dogs. Uh, Belgian Malinois, um, filling both categories of detection and tracking. Um, Exceptional dogs, uh, Dutch Shepherd as well, um, exceptional on both categories. So uh, Rottweilers as well, we use uh, Rottweilers also on the patrol function side. Very, very nice for night operations and a very nice as a protection breed and then uh, we've also got our south african bull, which is an exceptional conservational uh, breed originally bred for protecting livestock from dangerous game and now in our case used to protect the dangerous game itself so multiple breeds multiple breeds and, and multiple functions for each breed It more comes down to the individual ability of the individual dog, you know, so the dogs are identified from a very young age where their abilities lie. You know, um, a puppy with its nose constantly on its ground showing good pack dynamic and good scent capabilities makes a good platform for detection work. You know, the same token, a dominant puppy showing a hierarchy and pack mentality and an Alpha Omega sort of um, um, personality, you know, and it shows a good platform for, for a protection standard, you know. So we look at all these dynamics. We most certainly do look at the history into the breeds and as well as the history into the specific line of dogs with regards to mom and dad and grandparents. You know, there's a lot of money that goes into the accreditation of a conservation dog. So it's important that if we invest the the relevant funding that we invested into a platform that doesn't carry hereditary issues like dysplasia, cancers and this sort of thing, so that we've got a a very good chance that we're going to get a a good longevity out of the, the relevant service
0: dog. Our involvement with you has really been on that side of trying to keep the dogs healthy. Although our general manager in South Africa comes out with you and does a lot of work with you as well so there is a personal interaction going on but it's been how we try and control a lot of the diseases especially the parasitic diseases that they can get what is the impact of a dog becoming ill to your operation why is that so important
1: Okay, so firstly, I think the dynamic of, of anti-poaching, you know, working in these wildlife areas, we're talking, you know, an abundant wildlife area, South Africa, which is where I'm deployed, and Kruger National Park, um, Greater Kruger National Park. You know, these conservational areas probably have more parasitic value than, than most of the places in the world. You know, um, it's, it's a huge, huge problem for us. One of the biggest problems that we face in the utilisation of canines in such areas, is um, is exactly that. You know, it's the tick-borne diseases um, that uh, that our dogs are at the biggest risk to. We've got some nasty, nasty parasites. We've got uh, external parasites. The one we refer to as a as a bond-legged tick. Um, you know, this getting hold of a dog can can make a hole the size of a tennis ball inside a dog. You know, it's a, it's a horrible thing. Bunuri is 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 a big problem. Archer. You know, the fleas and stuff are so abundant in, in these areas. So, you know, a dog getting sick is, a, is of a huge complication to us. You know, firstly, our, our sites are very remote. Um, I've traveled two and a half hours in order to, to come and do this podcast just to get into an area that has Wi-Fi and electricity. You know, and um, our, our base camps being so remote means that, that our dogs are a, a long way away from veterinarian care. And, you know, any preventive measures that we can take in order to sustain their their health and well-being is a massive priority. You know, if we look to our requirements as well, you know, with with regards to dangerous game and even the poachers themselves, any product of, of, of like a scent value, like a repellent value. Um, doesn't work in our environments as it's, it's picked up by all the dangerous game, the elephants, you know, buffalo, rhino, the sort of thing. They pick up these unfamiliar scents and it creates and provokes all sorts of unwanted reactions. You know, a product that absorbs into the dog, dog and, and, and stops, um, you know, all your parasitic value, but has its odourless and, and it's not a repellent. It's actually, you know, an internal product. These products are just so perfectly suited for our environment. Um, we've gone from some severe problems, uh, para- parasite um, problems that we've had in the past to having four years, absolutely no complications in, in any regard, no tick-borne diseases, no fleas, um, no fly strike issues.
0: It's excellent to, to hear that that's, that's been going on. This this podcast, Carl, is global. We go around the world. You're talking about a problem in South Africa. Why is this important for for everyone to hear about, what is the impact globally that you see? So, but yeah, this is something
1: that's very, very important. You know, I was at the global ivory burn in Kenya in 2016, where they burned 105 tons of ivory, you know, obtained from 8,000 poached elephants, and um, 1.3 tons of rhino horn uh, poached from 343 rhinos. And um, we were with the Summit for Giants, and uh, while I was um, at this, at this event, um, this great global event, in a display to, to what should be done with all this contraband that has been confiscated, I uh, met up with a group that was doing um, a carcass study. They were from the United Nations, and they were doing a, a carcass study into the link between terrorism and poaching. And um, this, this specific lady um, that was doing this carcass study Showed me the 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 in representation of 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 her thesis. Showed me that the Al Qaeda and Al shabaab terrorist group responsible for blowing up the, the USA A. embassies in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and in Nairobi in Kenya, and uh, responsible for the attack um, at, at that West what um, a Westgate shopping center in Kenya, where, where seventy one people were were, were murdered that this terrorist organisation is funded through wildlife products. Seventy five percent funded through Ivory and Rhino. Horn. You know, and if you look if you look at how these wildlife products being obtained from third world countries are driving terrorist attacks in, in first world countries, it's a direct representation on on how this affects us. Globally, you know, and again, it comes down to the value of these products, you know, by by protecting animals in South Africa and rhinos and elephants in particular in, in Africa, you know, you are protecting the globe against terrorist attacks. And I feel that this is a, a very important point on um, what our responsibility is to to bring these terrorist groups and these syndicates to justice and, and we can achieve that by protecting these animals and not allowing them to obtain these products.
0: That really emphasises the One Health One Welfare aspects as well to me that all of these things are interlinked and we tend to try and deal with individual problems but there is so much connection between everything that we look at it's important to remember that. I know you're on duty, you've said you already said how far you've travelled in order to do this so I'm really grateful. As a last question, people who are listening to this who think they would like to support protecting the rhinos and protecting the wildlife in South Africa, how can they get, get involved? How can they help support? So, yeah, you know, but it's,
1: it's so important that, um, that people understand, you know, the severity of, of what we're dealing with here. You know, where people talk about, you know, can we save rhinos from extinction? You know, if we look at at our global population of rhinos over the last 100 years, we have gone from half a million rhinos globally to less than 20,000 that we have today. You know, we're looking at a statistic that in the last 100 years, we have lost 96% of our planet's rhinos. So if we look at it globally, and, and as rhinos in particular, you know, we're only sitting with the, the Sumatran and Javan rhinos. Sumatran rhinos, you're looking at about 100 individuals left on the planet. Uh, Javan rhinos, you're looking at about 40 individuals left on the planet. Greater one-horned rhinos, you're looking at about 900. And then, um, you know, we're we sitting with 90% of the planet's rhinos here in South Africa, where you're looking at your, your southern black rhino, sitting at about 4,000 individuals left on the planet. And your southern white rhino at about fourteen thousand. You know, so it's 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 really if you take that we've lost ninety-six percent over the last hundred years, of which ninety percent of that was over the last fifty years, you know, we've got to be realistic about what's gonna happen over the next fifty years. Uh, in just the last fifty years, if we look at wild lion populations, we see half a million wild lions reducing down to fifteen thousand. You know, which is more than 96% wiped out. We look at leopards over the last 50 years. We look at 750,000 leopards that have been reduced down to 50,000. You know, so we sit in at a time where where this fight is against time, and that we that you know we're losing this this battle hands down, and it's absolutely essential that um, that we provide the necessary protection to these animals should we wish to have them in our future. And I feel, you know, it's an absolute, it's everyone's responsibility, you know, in order to, to be part of the solution. And, uh, you know, from our organization, we're an open platform and we may certainly accommodate, you know, in order for anyone to be able to get involved and assist. You know, you can find us on uh, pitrack.org, so that's dot korg is our website. On our Help Us page, you will find all the relevant information on on how people can get involved. And, um, you know, I'd really motivate that anybody that that, that cares about our nature and our planet and the sustainable future with wildlife to get involved now, you know, while we've still got something left to protect and while we've still got a chance to, um, you know, undo all the damage that we've done. And uh, the help would be greatly appreciated.
0: Thank you. I will make sure I put... Links in the program notes as well, so people can go there and can have a look. Thank you very much. I've really appreciated hearing what you've been saying, and feel I've learned an incredible amount about what you do. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, and you yeah, are thank you for the opportunity to be able to share in our in our struggles this side, and uh, thank you for all the support you know from MSD. Um, throughout all the over all the years that they've given to our organisation and for walking hand-in-hand hand with us on this journey to secure wildlife for our future, it's greatly appreciated.
0: I'm still amazed by everything I learned during that talk. As ever, the actual interview itself was longer. I've had to cut things down. It was a real eye-opener for me. I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity. Looking forward to the rest of the year, we will be continuing with the podcasts. We've got a couple of interesting ones coming up. We are going to have an episode looking at avian influenza. The last six months have seen some real explosion in cases all around the world. We're seeing new cases happening. And there's a lot of conversation about vaccination of poultry for highly pathogenic avian influenza. Making this a very good fit topic for us to cover. I hope to have a couple of experts to talk that through a little bit more. I've also got coming up an interview with Deborah Nadal. This is on social interaction with dogs and rabies. Deborah wrote the book Rabies in the Streets, Interspecies Camaraderie in Urban India, an incredibly good examination of what is happening and how people and dogs interact when they're together and how that impacts on rabies. Not only that, but she's recently done some work for the United Against Rabies Forum and she's been looking at rabies and the pandemic, the effects on rabies campaigns and lessons for One Health. Following with the rabies, we're also Closer to World Rabies Day, we will be interviewing Professor Lord Trees and talking to him about the political impacts and challenges of getting to rabies elimination. We will, of course, be continuing with our Rabies Hero Awards, and we'll tell you more about those. And once again this year, we will be doing the Rabies 360 Challenge. If you've got any subjects, any areas you'd like us to cover in the podcast, then contact me, let me know. I want to keep this relevant for your concerns and your interests and helping everyone improve their control and eradication of One Health diseases. And that's it from me and our guests for this episode. Keep safe. I'll speak to you again soon.